Okay, today we're going to get started with the 21st Psalm. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly he shall rejoice, shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessing of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. You have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing, pray, sing and praise your power. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the opportunity to meet here today, and thank you for the beautiful weather you've provided us. It's the nicest day yet this year, and we just want to rejoice in your goodness to us and how you've ended the, the summer and we're into the fall where the weather is cooler and things are so much more beautiful and fresh. And Lord, we want to give you all the glory and the majesty and the honor that you are due because you're a great and wonderful and loving creator. You've given us each other to fellowship with. You've given us your word to study and to know. And you've sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to take our place and pay the sin debt that we could never, never pay. And we thank you for these and so many other things. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, which seals us for the day of redemption. Lord God, we love you. We praise you. All honor and majesty belong to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, a um, couple announcements and then uh, maybe a prayer request or two. Uh, the first thing is uh, Jim is here, and if you see him get up, and maybe he's not here now. Anyway, uh, he already left? Okay, good. He uh, wanted to let people know he's not getting up because he's disappointed or anything, but he, he had to go somewhere, so he's just going to leave early. And uh, in November, the first service in November, which is whatever the first Sunday in uh, November is, we're changing from 10.30 to 10 o'clock because the beach is going to start filling up, the parking lot. So if we get here a little earlier, it'll make things easier. So remember that November services begin at 10 o'clock. And uh, then, of course, every week I always mention that I'm looking for inviters of others. If you uh, have people that uh, want to hear the Bible preached from the Bible and analyzed uh, we've been going from uh, Genesis 1-1. Today is our 46th sermon in Genesis, and uh, we're in the uh, 21st chapter of uh, Genesis. So we're going slowly, and uh, we're trying to get out of it uh, what we can. But uh, please feel free to invite anybody that would like to uh, come to that. And uh, if you've never been scripturally baptized, which means uh, being buried uh, with Christ and raised to newness of life, it's a picture of uh, full immersion uh, water baptism is uh, what I proclaim because that's what the Bible teaches. Every person that was uh, baptized in the Bible did so after receiving Jesus Christ. And so it's a public affirmation of that. Going under the water is a picture of going into the grave with him. Coming up is uh, a picture of being resurrected to newness of life. And I will do that any day of the week or any time. Uh, it doesn't matter how cold or how many waves or whatever. That's something I offer for people. And... Um, uh, we have Paul and Elaine Stoll, who are in 
uh, Japan. There are missionaries from Church on the Beach, and they're uh, currently serving in Japan. They uh, said the weather is surprisingly, it's very nice where they are, they are right now. Uh, they're in the very north of Japan, and very soon the lion comes in and the snow starts building up. So I'd like to keep them in prayer. They're doing really great things over there. And um, uh, so Paul and Elaine, and uh, once again, I mention this every single week, is that we have elections coming up, and there are moral choices to be made. And rather than picking an individual, I would suggest that people look at the party platform, because the party platform is what indicates what they are holding to, regardless of their religious preference. Uh, the party platform is something that they have all signed, and that means from whether it's the president or whoever is the highest Republican, all the way down to the local tax collector, they have signed that party platform. And one of the party platforms is at variance with the things of God and what the Bible proclaims. So I'd like you to at least consider that because you cannot separate your moral decisions from the moral things that you do. And uh, so please just evaluate yourself before you make your vote so that you don't do something that would be contrary to what the Lord would want you to do. Um, I have some flyers here for Church on the Beach. If anybody wants them or pass them out to anybody, they may be in the, uh, the bag there. But anyway, uh, uh, it says 10.30 on there, and if you get it, just change it to 10 o'clock starting in November. And um, as I said, today is the 46th sermon in Genesis. And uh, because she seems to show up every week, I don't understand her glutton uh, for punishment, but uh, Kelly's been to every one of those 46 sermons, plus all of them when we were doing this in the afternoon last year when I was doing all the uh, doctrine sermons. And so uh, she really is, uh, I don't know, she just is a glutton for punishment, but here she comes again. And uh, I, I want to mention somebody, and she watches on YouTube every single week, and I don't know if she watches the announcements or if she just watches the sermons. But uh, she, uh, uh, I won't even say her name. I will say just her nickname. It's Naj. And I just want to recognize her because she emails me from time to time, and what an uplifting person. So if she listens to these announcements, I want her to know how much she means to me as an individual who I've never met, and I probably will never meet her, but uh, uh, she emails me and she tells me how in love with God's Word she's become because of these sermons and how she's reading her Bible daily and telling other people about Jesus, one person in particular that she's telling about Jesus. And... Um, uh, that is the type of person that understands God's word in its fullness. And she's, she's so hungry for it. And I appreciate that. And I say this week after week after week, if you've been here more than once, you've heard me say this, that it takes 154 days to read your Bible from the beginning to the end if you read it 30 minutes a day. 77 hours out loud reading just if you have one of those Bible marathons and you divide that up, it's uh, 30 minutes a day, take you 154 uh, days to read your Bible. So in the course of a year and a half, for those of you who were at the first Church on the Beach sermon July of last year, you could have read your Bible three times now. And am I trying to make you feel bad? Yes, of course. I want you to read your Bible because you can stand here and you can listen to me preach or any other preacher in America, but if in fact I am wrong, bad doctrine is sin. I may be sinful in preaching wrong, but you are accountable for your own doctrine. And that's why if you go into a church and you don't understand what the preacher is saying, and you just take his word for granted and he's wrong, that transfers to you. So read your Bible and understand when somebody is mishandling the word of God, misapplying it. And uh, one thing that I used to say in my Bible class week after week is go home and check what I've said. And it came to the point where one week I said to you, 
you know, by saying that, you might think that what I'm saying is saying, well, I'm okay because I want you to check what I said, so you don't really have to check what I said. And I told him, you really need to check what I said, because I may be wrong. Always check against the Bible. That is the standard, okay? And um, we're not going to have any New Testament reading today, because I'm going to go through a passage in the New Testament during the sermon that we've gone through before, but it bears right on what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to skip the New Testament reading, and we'll get into, right now, Genesis, um, I'm sorry, Revelation 21. Now, normally I read two psalms, but uh, today was the 21st, and I just, by chance, picked the 21st psalm that I just read. And I thought, well, seeing as I did that, I might as well pick the 21st chapter of Revelation. And so we'll have three 21s in here today. Not that numbers have any significance in that manner, but I just thought it would be kind of fun, and it's a beautiful passage. So here we go, Revelation chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their place, their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city of the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me, he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its walls, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was, pure, was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was like pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamp is its light, 
and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means en enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is 21 October, and on this day in 1797, Old Ironsides was uh, launched in Boston Harbor. Does anybody know what Old Ironsides' actual name is? The USS Constitution. Give that man an A+. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the elect electric incandescent lamp. It would last for 13 and a half hours before it burned out. Now, one thing about the uh, uh, incandescent lamp that I was thinking about, and this ties in with cell phones and everything else, and I, I'm very proud to be an American, and I'm proud of our achievements. And one thing that people like to do is slam us because we've, you know, gotten all this wealth and, you know, we've profited and the rest of the world may be behind in some areas. But uh, as I said to my brother one time, I came back from uh, Thailand, I think it was, and uh, here's a lady that's uh, in a sampan, one of those little things in the, uh, the village market where they, the market is out in the uh, canals itself, and they sell fruit and stuff from their boats. And she's talking on a cell phone. And in this area, they had skipped directly from no phones to cell phones. Whereas we, back in the early, uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, started with phones and with copper wires all over the place. If you've ever seen the old photos of New York, there were billions of them. And uh, eventually we got it down to where we could get more through one wire and more through one wire. And it was a very costly process and it took a lot of innovation, it took a lot of resources, a lot of hard work and energy. And um, most of Africa, not, not all of it, but most of Africa did the same thing. They went from no phones at all to having cell phones. And that came about by technology and by inventiveness. People like Thomas Edison who had to work to build something and then somebody built upon that. And so what the rest of the world doesn't understand uh, when they get down on America for its achievements and whatever is that it was a long, hard process and they are the recipients of those benefits. So uh, I just wanted to throw that in because I am a proud American. Uh, I served in the, uh, the U.S. Air Force. My brother is currently in the U.S. Air Force. He's a senior master sergeant. And uh, I know that there are other people here as well that have served in the uh, military. And uh, my hat is off to you, and I thank you for your service. Anyway, um, in uh, 1917, the first U.S. soldiers entered combat in World War I near Nancy, France. And uh, I always bring up these war things, and the reason why is because these uh, young people went off and they thought they're going to you know, save the world or whatever they're going to do, and some of them did. Some of them came back. Some of them were you know, uh, uh, maimed when they came back, and some of them never came back. And the people that went into that particular battle woke up in the morning and had their breakfast and put on their shoes and never thought, you know, this will be the last breakfast I eat or this will be the last time I put these shoes on. And that is the way of life, is that we are all going to have an end, every one of us. And we have to be ready when that end comes. I had a neighbor die a week ago, and she wasn't old, and she had a lot of life in her, and she died. And uh, her fate according to the Bible, is sealed. There's, the Bible says that we're, we're to die and then the judgment. We don't get reincarnated. We don't have second chances. So I would ask that if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to listen today, maybe you'll hear something that will touch your heart and uh, help you understand your great need for him and what he has done. 
1918, and boy, this one is personal to me. Uh, I learned to type in ninth grade in uh, Brookside Junior High School, and um, uh, I joined the U.S. Air Force, and I was required to type 30 words a minute in order to meet my job requirement. And until I did that, I could not go to my first job assignment. And it was Japan, and I wanted to go there. It was the only thing I wrote on my entire dream sheet, which was, I think, 16 choices. I just wrote J.A. I figure if I can't go there, they can send me anywhere in the world. That's where I want to go. And uh, I had to be able to type 30 words a minute. And, boy, I stressed over 30 words a minute. Well, in 1918, Margaret Owen set a typing speed record on a manual typewriter. And if you're old enough to know what those things are like, you had to push way down for each key, and they were very cumbersome. She typed 170 words a minute. So I, I had to add this in here because my hair is standing up at the thought of a woman doing that. When I, I, I struggled at 30. All right. Anyway, in 1967, we had demonstrators march on Washington in opposition to the Vietnam War. That's their right in this nation, and uh, I would hope that most of them would uh, uh, understand that this nation makes mistakes, it uh, uh, has obligations, and um, some wars are right and some wars aren't, but uh, in the end, we are citizens of a nation, and we have to evaluate our uh, position in a nation based on the fact that we are citizens. So, Vietnam War uh, protests, and then in 1983, the Pentagon reported that 2,000 Marines were headed to Grenada to protect and evacuate Americans living there. And that was a, a fun uh, little adventure for some of the Marines. I know they seem to enjoy that. And um, we uh, liberated Grenada from uh, Castro's Cuban presence and some Russian advisors that were there. And um, anyway, kind of an interesting thing as far as Grenada. And if you've ever seen the movie Heartbreak Ridge by uh, Clint Eastwood, he, uh, uh, you know, it's based on the coming battle in Grenada, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a goofy Clint Eastwood movie. But if you want to know about that particular battle from a Marine's perspective, that would be it right there. And uh, all right, we're going to go ahead and get into Genesis 21. It's verses 9 through 21 today. This is called Cast Out the Bondwoman and Her Son. And uh, there were a few of you that were here over the uh, last week, and I asked you to read these verses, actually read from uh, Genesis 21, 1 through 13 and see if you could figure out what Feast of the Lord from Leviticus 23 is being prefigured in the uh, passages. Does anybody do that? Does anybody, uh, was anybody able to figure that out? Okay, Genesis 21, 9 through 21, cast out the bondwoman and her son. It's a picture of the day of Pentecost. That's what's being prefigured in these verses today. Um, so, here we go. I'm going to go ahead and read the, uh, the particular verses, starting with verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the, your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac shall your seed be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took, the, a bread of, uh, uh, took bread and a skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him a distance of about a bow shot. 
for she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Reading these old stories in the uh, Old Testament will often leave us wondering why they're in the Bible. And we've gone all the way from Genesis 1-1 and we saw the story of the fall of man and you have to ask yourself, why is that recorded in there? Cain and Abel, why is that in there? Does it have any significance? And if you heard that sermon on Cain and Abel, you know that the naming of Cain was pertinent to what Eve was feeling about what she had lost. And then naming Abel showed her the uselessness of life. And that's what his name means. Abel comes from the Hebrew word Hevel, which means meaningless or vanity. And Solomon built on that in the book of Ecclesiastes when he said, Hevel Hevelim Amer Hakolet Hevel, which means meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. And he was building on what Eve had said back in the Garden of Eden. Why is that in there? And then after that, we come up with the story of the Tower of Babel. Why? Why did he include that in there? What are the words in there indicating to us? And uh, before that, actually, we had the sons of uh, God uh, intermarrying with the, uh, the daughters of men. And they're called the Nephilim. And people come up with all kinds of crazy uh, theories about the Nephilim. Maybe they're angels sleeping with men, or maybe they're... Uh, aliens, space aliens sleeping with men and all of these big giants come out of there. That's not what God is trying to tell us. Each one of these stories is in here for a reason. We come to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and we saw the pictures of what would come in the future from something that seemed like just destruction out comes life. And then we see the two daughters of Lot in the cave and they're there with their father. And they don't have a man around and they sleep with their father and out comes children. And the whole world condemns them for what they did when, in fact, the children born of those two girls are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so we, we find these treasures that are hidden in the word, and we have to deduce, why did God put them in there? Today we're going to look at the account of Hagar and Ishmael that I just read you as they leave the home of Abraham and they start life apart from them. And while we're looking at the account, we have to remember that this is what God decided to include in his word. And therefore, it must be relevant to understanding how he interacts with his people. We looked at the overall purpose of Hagar and Ishmael being included in the Bible before. And today, we're going to have a partial review of that. We're going to include some new things as well. One of the interesting studies that we've looked at so far, and I just alluded to it with the daughters of Lot, and we're going to continue to look at this through the entire Old Testament, concerns those who would be in the line, the ancestral or genealogical line of Jesus Christ, just like Lot's girls. Interestingly, despite there being some very sketchy people found in those ancestral records, there is not a single person from Ishmael's line, from Hagar through Ishmael down to Jesus Christ. There's not one of them listed in his genealogy. And to key, the key to understanding why 
is the key to understanding the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. There are no works of the law, and this is very well laid out in the New Testament, no works of the law that can save us. And Hagar and Ishmael are pictures of that law and the people of that law. And therefore, they are excluded from Jesus' genealogy. Such are the dealings of God with men. The Bible is a beautiful story of redemption from sin, which comes solely by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and no works of the law. Our text verse for today comes from 1 Chronicles. It's chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. These are the genealogies. The firstborn of Ishmael was Nebaioth, then Kadar, Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedima. These were the sons of Ishmael. Hagar bore Abraham a son named Ishmael. That son then bore 12 sons of his own. But unlike Isaac, who was born of a promise, Ishmael was born in the normal way. Sarah and Isaac are a picture of grace, while Hagar and Ishmael are a picture of the law and people under the law. The law cannot save. Only God's grace through our faith is what saves us. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is cast out the bondwoman and her son. Last week's sermon gave details about the birth, the circumcision, and the weaning of Isaac. The last verse we looked at was verse 8, and it said, So the child was we grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. The next verse, verse 9, is our first verse of today. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. The son of Hagar the Egyptian is Ishmael, and he's not mentioned by name, but rather by his mother's name and her nation. This is to show the contrast between Isaac, who was named by name in the preceding verse, and Ishmael, who was called the son of Hagar the Egyptian, rather than being called Ishmael. And this is to remind us that as the Israelites, who were under the law, were never to return to Egypt, we as Christians are never to return to the bondage of the law. Isaac is now the center of attention. He's the son of promise, and he is the inheritor of Abraham's estate. In contrast to the older son, Ishmael, who is still just the son of a maid, and so he is excluded from the spiritual and the land promises which God has revealed to Abraham. This is known as the doctrine of divine election, and I brought it up time and time again so far. The second in a family replacing the first. And we're going to see this probably 20 more times in the Old Testament. The second replacing the first. Divine election. His scoffing, I, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ishmael's scoffing during the feast that was mentioned in the previous verse is there for a reason. Isaac is now three years old, and this is his initiation from being a baby into considered a man within the camp. And for whatever reason, Ishmael is scoffing at his younger brother. We can let our imaginations run wild as to why, because the Bible doesn't give us any specific description. He might have been dressed in a goofy little outfit. When I was, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, when Koreans have this feast of weaning, they dress him up real cute and everything. Maybe he was in this outfit and uh, uh, Ishmael was laughing at him. Or maybe he was just trying to feed himself for the first time and he was making a mess of it. Or 
you know, maybe Abraham was getting all of his attention and it was making Ishmael jealous. For whatever the reason, Ishmael is there and he is mocking his younger brother. He's about 17 years old at this point, and you know how teenagers can get when they get around jealousy and their, their makeup. Whatever the reason, he is scoffing. This is not mere laughing. There is a different word used for laughing, which is associated with Isaac's name, Yitzhak. And we saw that word used time and again about the laughing and the joy that God gives. And that's why he was given the name Isaac or Yitzhak. The word here is mesahek. It's a completely different word identified with what Ishmael is doing towards his younger brother. The meaning of mesahek can vary in intensity, but a stronger and a less happy meaning is certainly intended. And we know this because Paul writes about this exact account in the New Testament. There in the book of Galatians, here's what he says about it. He says, now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, which is Isaac, so it is even now. So Paul is taking this and he's making a spiritual application of what occurred in Genesis. Paul calls it outright persecution, and therefore Ishmael's laughing was contemptuous at best, and it was possibly life-threatening towards his younger half-brother. Sarah saw this, and she was appalled. A 17-year-old mocking a little three-year-old would be enough to upset any mother in any generation, but how much more when they're living in the same camp together? Because Paul labels this persecution, and because of the timing of when it has occurred in this account, it is the beginning of a fulfillment of a verse that we looked at many, many weeks ago, back in Genesis 15. At the time when God made a covenant with Abraham, and then he confirmed that covenant, he spoke these words to him. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them and will afflict them 400 years. The concept of Ishmael persecuting Isaac is absolutely critical in understanding the timing of this statement from God to Abraham. From this account right here, verse 9 today, it will be 400 years before the Israelites are led out of the bondage of Egypt and from their time of being mistreated both in Canaan and in Egypt. This then is about 30 years after the promise made to Abraham. God uh, told him something, Abraham looked up, he believed, God credited to him for righteousness, and then after that you may remember there was a fire and a smoking torch that went through the cut pieces of the animal, cutting the covenant, and it's about 30 years from that time, and it will be 400 years from this verse until they're led out of bondage. And this is all very relevant to the story of Hagar and Ishmael and what they picture. Talking about God's promises and his faithfulness, a few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how it pictures the coming rapture of the church. Now, do you think that God would put those hints of what he was going to do 4,000 years later in an account about the destruction of a city if he didn't really intend to follow through with those promises? I know that it seems like our lives are often getting out of control, especially in today's world, and that there is nothing firm and nothing stable to hold on to but that is the farthest thing from the truth. God has a plan which is so detailed, it is so minute in what it reveals to us and what it intends for us, that we have every reason to stand firm in our hope and hold fast to our convictions. Now, I'm not gonna make too much of a uh, example of him right now, but I can tell you that there's a person sitting right over here that has some real afflictions in his life right now. 
and he is holding on to God's promises. And I have seen his faith grow immensely in the past year when most people would say, I'm done with God. And that's because he understands who his creator is and what his word is trying to tell him, not about this life, but about the future that is coming. And we have that sure hope. The thing that we should take away from details like this is that he is a God of details. Every soreback, every lost loved one, every sleepless night that we have, all of it, he has every bit of this under control and he will complete what he has started. If Jesus can overcome the cross of Calvary and the grave, then we can overcome through him. So please stand firm on that. We'll go on to verse 10. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, with Isaac. Of course, about 50% of the people who read this verse and look at the little pictures that have been drawn over the years of it come to the sense that Sarah and maybe even Abraham have committed some type of great offense by both thinking this and actually following through with it, as we're going to see in a few minutes. But the context of the account and the rest of the Bible make it absolutely clear that Sarah is both just and she is right in her words. Cast out this bondwoman and her son. The word she uses for cast out is a Hebrew word, garesh, and it's used elsewhere, such as in the book of Leviticus, to indicate an actual divorce. And this is exactly, it is exactly what Sarah is implying. Even though she calls her the bondwoman, she is also labeled elsewhere as Abraham's wife. So what Sarah is asking for is something of a legal and a formal declaration that Hagar will be out, not just as a slave, but also as a wife of Abraham. The second half of this verse assures us that this is so, because it says, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son. Now listen to what Paul says about the rights of the heir in Romans chapter four, remembering that Ishmael is a picture of the people under the law and Isaac is a picture of the people of the law or of grace of God. Here's what he says. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is of no effect. Now, before we go on, we're going to revisit Galatians chapter four again. That's why we didn't have a New Testament reading. We've done this several times in the past, but it is will help you to understand why this account is in here at all and what significance it has both to you and to all people who are free from the bondage and the constraints of the law because of the Lord Jesus and what he did. Here's what it says, starting in Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Now, he doesn't literally mean that. What's happened is these people, they're called Judaizers. They're people that were under the law of Moses. They've come to the Jews and the Christians, the non-Jews that have accepted Jesus Christ, and they say, you have to accept the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised in order to be saved when they've already been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So tongue in cheek, he says, tell me you who want to be under the law, do you not hear the law? In other words, he is going to use the law against the law to show that the law was only something temporary leading to Jesus Christ. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. What that means is that Hagar is his maid. Sarah said, go into my maid and have a child. And he did, and out, out comes a child. It was done in the normal way, and it was done in the fleshly way. And he of the free woman 
through the promise. Long before Isaac was even thought of, they said, you are going to have a son through Sarah, and you'll call his name Isaac. This is something spiritual. It's not something that normally happens. You don't go up and say, you're going to have a child at this time of this year, and you're going to give it this name. It is a son of promise. Which things are symbolic, Paul says. He's saying that this account is symbolic of something else. And he says this throughout the New Testament when he's referring to Old Testament accounts. The Old Testament is prefiguring or picturing the work of Jesus Christ in our relationship to him and to that work. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. That's the law of Moses, which is Hagar. He specifically ties Hagar in with the law of Moses. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now, meaning the temple was standing and the people under the law and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren woman, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. He's quoting Isaiah and he's saying that the barren woman, Sarah, is going to have a son and through the son are going to be many more than under the the law, who is Hagar and her son Ishmael. Now we brethren, as Isaac was our children of promise, but as he was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. He ties in the persecution that we just read about. All right. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. The works of the law are set aside because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Now that we have seen the purpose of the actors in this play, we can look at Ishmael's laughing and make more connections. And this is exactly what God wants us to do because he specifically notes this laughing in his word. The first is that Ishmael probably looked at this little boy and he couldn't believe that this little boy would be the father of many nations and the son of promise. He probably wondered how such a little boy, so small and helpless, could ever meet the Lord's purposes. But Paul in the New Testament reminds us of how this is so. He says here, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He's comparing Christians with the rest of the world. And he's saying that we're not very wise or mighty or noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring nothing, the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What that is saying is that when we come to Jesus Christ, it is by faith alone and we have no works added to it. So that when we are redeemed and brought in the presence of God, we have no boasting. We're going to point at the Lamb of God and say, look at what he did for me. This scoffing of Ishmael is then a picture in itself. Just as Hagar and Ishmael point to the law and the people of the law, and Sarah to, and Isaac to the grace of Jesus Christ, Ishmael's scoffing points to the scoffing of Israel at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember the book of Acts, if you've read that, Jesus Christ was resurrected and he goes up to the Mount of Olives and he's ready to ascend into heaven. 
This is 40 days after the resurrection. And he says, wait in, Jer wait in Jerusalem and I will send you the promised gift, the gift that I've already told you about. So they go down, he ascends, they go down into Jerusalem. They're there 10 days later, which is the 50th day. It's a picture of the Feast of Pentecost or Shavuot from the Old Testament. That's what the Hebrew name is. We have them waiting there in the temple area. Now we know it's a temple area because 3,000 people were saved at that time. It's the only place in Jerusalem that would have had all of these pilgrims there. Now it's Acts chapter 2. They're in the temple area and there are people because it is a feast and the males of Israel were required three times a year to go to Jerusalem to uh, worship at these feasts. There are people from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish people at this temple, and they speak all of the languages of the area. You know, you've got Parthians and Medes and Cyrenians and all these different languages that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2. They're standing around there and they're, they're doing their uh, Shavuot worshiping, and all of a sudden it says that this mighty rushing wind came and tongues of fire descended on the apostles, and they started speaking in tongues. They're speaking the language of all of the people around them. And they're saying, how can this be? Look, this is where the story picks up. It says, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And then he told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was promised by God because of the work of Jesus Christ. The older brother Ishmael is a picture of the people of the older covenant, the bondage of the law and those who are held in it. He scoffed at his younger brother just as those in Jerusalem scoffed at those under the new covenant, which is grace found in Jesus Christ. And even more amazing than that is that they both occurred on a feast day. The first was at the weaning of Isaac when he moved from milk to solid food within the company of Abraham's tent. And the second was at the weaning of God's people at Pentecost, when they went from spiritual milk to spiritual solid food. And then we don't even need to wonder about this unusual word garesh by looking in the New Testament, the word divorce that I mentioned earlier. All we need to do is to go to the Old Testament to understand why a divorce was necessary. This is from Deuteronomy 24. Listen to what it says here. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. There was a marriage contract at the time of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and we were divorced through that by the work of Jesus Christ. The symbolism of Hagar is absolutely clear. We are never never, never to return to the law and deeds of the law to try to find God's favor when God has done the work for us. Paul explains this very clearly in the book of Romans chapter 7 to help us understand. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another.
to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. Can you now see, and I hope that you've seen this already if you've been to any of these Genesis sermons, how important it is to have the foundation of all things that God has given us in this book of Genesis. It is a marvel and it is a glory and a testament to the wisdom and the power of God for all who believe. God included this story, this seemingly just innocuous story of a boy laughing at his younger brother as a type or as a shadow of those under the law laughing at their younger brother of promise, which is the church at its own feast of weaning. Verse 11, and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. It's quite evident from the previous accounts that we've noticed in Abraham's life that this guy is a truly honorable man. He's a non-confrontational man and he is a family-oriented man. He took along Lot with him when he left Haran and went into the promised land of Canaan. He gave him the choice of where to live. When uh, they multiplied too much and they needed to separate, Abraham said, if you turn to the left, I'll turn to the right, and vice versa. If you turn to the right, I'll turn to the left. He was gracious before his nephew Lot. He went after Lot and he captured him and rescued him when he was taken by the four kings of the east. He pleaded with the Lord before the destruction of Sodom, hoping that the city would be spared because his nephew Lot was there. These things and all the other things things that we've seen in Abraham's life show us his character and his conduct. So what he hears Sarah proposing has to be very, very tough on him. No matter what the situation between him and Hagar, Ishmael is his son and he has loved him and had him living with him now for 17 years. And now he is being asked to cut this tie and to send his son out into a hostile and unforgiving land. There's a Jewish writer named Perk Eliezer, and he notes that of all of the evils which came upon Abraham in his long life, this was the hardest and the most grievous in his sight. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac shall your seed be called. Whatever misguided notions people think or teach about what Sarah proposed and what Abraham followed through with, God had no problem with it. It is always best to think these things through and try to understand why they occur rather than making emotional and knee-jerk reactions when analyzing the Bible. Even in America, we will kick young adults out of our homes when they cause problems. Now I'm guessing, although I can't speak for either of them, that one or maybe both of my children will testify to this at one point or another in their life. So what is the point of this verse being here? like the symbolic nature of the entire account, Paul explains it. We saw uh, Galatians 4 where he explained the account. In this verse, Paul cites it in the book of Romans to remind us about God's election. It says there in Romans 9, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac, shall your seed be called. God spoke to Abraham and he told him not to worry. He'd already given a promise to Ishmael several several years earlier about this boy. Abraham, don't you remember? I told you that he would become fruitful, he'd multiply, and that he would be the father of 12 princes. It will all work out just as it should. Verse 13, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. This promise is repeated 
to Abraham from Genesis 17:20, which I just alluded to, and it will be confirmed in Genesis 25, verse 16. God told Abraham that Ishmael would have 12 sons, and we find out later he did. And that's exactly the reason why I read you as our text verse for today, 1 Chronicles 1. It is in the genealogy of the people of the world that was carefully and meticulously maintained by the Jewish people. Ishmael is remembered even there. Through the sons of Ishmael are going to come a chain of events which will eventually lead to the deliverance of the Israelites 400 years later. You see, when his brothers, Joseph's brothers, took him and they threw him into a well, do you remember who came along and bought him? It was Midianites, and Midian is one of the sons of Ishmael. So they took him moved him down to Egypt, and they resold him to a guy named Potiphar the Egyptian. And Potiphar happened to work for Pharaoh. And something happened which got him thrown into jail. He's in jail for a while, and then he's brought out of that jail, and he becomes, he sits at the right hand of Pharaoh. If this didn't happen, Joseph never would have ascended to the right hand. And every detail of history is carefully and it is minutely woven together to lead to the fulfillment of God's plan. Every bit of it. Likewise, through the law, which Ishmael pictures, will come the deliverance of the entire world when Jesus Christ comes to fulfill that very law on our behalf. And then he sits down at the right hand of God. The patterns that are laid down in this book are simply astonishing. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is wandering in the wilderness. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took a bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Again, like other times in the Bible, it is noted as early in the morning. God probably spoke to Abraham in a dream that night. And like every other time that God speaks to him, he obeys immediately. There is no dallying in the life of Abraham. When God speaks to him, Abraham listens and he acts. If you read this verse in some versions, like the King James Version or the English Standard Version, it's almost confusing what's going on here. And I want to show you the difference. Here's the ESV. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Because of the wording, it almost sounds like Abraham put the water, the bread, and Ishmael on Hagar's shoulders and sent her out. The implication is here's this poor lady with this little boy being sent out to wander around in the wilderness. And this is not at all what you should imagine from this account. But as I said earlier, most depictions, if you look at the old pictographs and things that people made over the years of Hagar and Ishmael, she's got this teeny little boy and they're walking around out there and it's pulling people's heartstrings. He is, as I said, about 17 years old. Abraham gave the bread and the water to her to carry because it is the job of women in the Middle East to carry stuff around. Throughout the Bible, and even if you go over there today and you look at the ladies, you will see them carrying stuff around. That's what they do. Plus, Abraham had a boy, and he had uh, hugs that he wanted from that boy. He wanted to cry over that boy. And if he had given the bread to Ishmael, the bread would have gotten smushed. And if he had given the water to Ishmael, the water would have gotten spilled. So what he did is both expedient and it's right. He gives the water and the bread to Hagar, and then he gives his boy a nice hug and he sends him off. 
And this parting had to be a heartbreaker. But obedience is what he has been called to, and Abraham is a man of obedience. And a point there from that is that God has given us his word, and there are certain things that we must be obedient to. And we need to be like Abraham and be obedient, but not just obedient, but do it immediately. No matter how sorrowful to our human nature, anyone who is devout and who is fearful of God will walk in the ways of Abraham. They will obey immediately, even when it concerns family or when it concerns loved ones. As the Geneva Bible cites about this particular verse, true faith renounces all natural affections to obey God's commandment. Remember, this is a picture of the law versus grace. We are asked to cut our tie to the law, not in part, but in its entirety. And we are to be obedient to what the Lord has accomplished for us by setting aside the law in exchange for grace, just as Abraham has done with Ishmael. Verse 15, and the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Based on Ishmael's age of 17 years old, this might seem improbable. How could a 17-year-old be in this condition before his mother, who's much older than him? And the answer is found in our own genetic makeup. Men are about 60, 60% body water. Women are only 50% body water. But men are only 3 to 5% body fat, whereas women are 10 to 16% body fat. The percentage of body fat for women is so that they can bear children and they have other hormonal issues which affect the amount of fat that they need in their body. And because of this, men burn off water more quickly and ladies hold it in. Ishmael's loss of water was enough to make him weary before her. And so she puts him under a shrub to get him out of the sun. Verse 16, then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and she lifted up her voice and wept. A bow shot. This is a little trivia for you so you get a new squiggle on your brain. This is the only time in the Bible that this word is ever used. It's the Hebrew word kim takhave, and it indicates a very long distance. A bow shot, they've determined, is about a half of a mile. Hagar could not bear to the thought of being close to her son as he's dying and him calling out for water. And so she went far enough away so that she wouldn't not only see him, but she also wouldn't hear him. And not only that, she also didn't want Ishmael to hear her cries as well. The expression to lift up her voice means that she really, really sobbed over what was happening and she didn't want this boy to hear. This is a very sad and desperate scene which will be repeated numerous times throughout the Bible. People dying. In fact, it's something that cannot be missed. Death is something that every person is going to face in others and eventually in them. And the wages of sin, after all, is death. And thus we are all destined to die because we are all sinners and we all need a savior. The thing that I wanted to know though was why. Why does God include this particular verse? Why is her immense weeping mentioned? And there is a reason for it. Everything in God's word has a reason and it's not just arbitrary. What I do is I type these sermons four weeks in advance, actually five weeks, and then the fourth week or the fifth week, I start practicing it out loud for the entire week. I do it seven times like I did an hour and a half ago before I came out here. And on Monday, as I was practicing it for the first time, it came to me. This is a picture of the end of the tribulation period noted in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns with his church 
to rescue the people of Israel. According to Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, and if you don't know these verses, they are the four most important verses in the entire Bible for understanding every eschatological or end times thing that will happen from the time of Daniel all the way through to the end of human history. According to those four verses, Israel has seven more years left to them, and they are going to occur after the rapture of the church. This final seven years is the final seven years of the law of Moses. And this is something that God has guaranteed to them. So we need to treat this very carefully. At the end of this period, when Christ returns to his people, we read this in the book of Zechariah, it's chapter 12. Remember, we're speaking of Hagar's mourning, all right? I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Think of Hagar mourning for her son Ishmael. This is what's being prefigured here. In that day there should be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Hagar is a picture of the law and she is mourning over the coming possible death of her son. The same mourning is going to be seen at this time in Israel at the death of the law through the death of Jesus Christ when the grace of Christ is bestowed upon them. The proof of this is coming in the coming verses as well. And that brings us to our third and final thought today. God hears. Verse 17, And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called out to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Here we have a play on words. The Yishma, or, And God heard the voice of the lad whose name is Ishmael, which means God hears. This reminds us of the promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 16 when God told Hagar that she would have a child and to name him Ishmael, or God hears. Why? Because God heard then. God hears right now, and God will always be there to hear. And here he is, the angel of God crying out to Hagar, what ails you, Hagar? In other words, why are you crying? Don't you remember my promises of the past? Here I am ready to fulfill them to you now. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad. God heard their cries then, and God will hear the cries of his people Israel, who is being pictured here, and he will respond. I hope you can see how these parallels of what God is doing show us why God put them in here in the first place. God is returning to tend to Israel after their time in the wilderness. He is ever faithful to his unfaithful people. Here's an example. When they were at Mount Sinai, they rejected God. And God punished them and they wandered in the wilderness 38.8 years. And then they were in the land of Israel and they rejected God. And he exiled them to the wilderness of Babylon for 70 years. And they didn't obey. And in accordance with Leviticus chapter 26, it says, if you don't listen the first time, I'll punish your sins seven times over. So here they are 
being exiled again. They've been around the world in the diaspora for the past 2,000 years, out in the wilderness, and God has called them back, still under the law in their own minds, not understanding what God is trying to tell them. But there's a good reason and a purpose for it, as we'll see in a minute. Verse 18, Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Once again, this goes right back to Genesis 16 and the original promise to Hagar before Ishmael was even born. Don't you remember, Hagar? I'm right here tending to every detail. And so he tells her to walk back this half mile or so that she had wandered away and hold the boy because what he promised will come about. Ishmael will become a great nation. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Hagar trots back and once she gets there, her eyes are opened to a well of water. There are two possibilities about this. The first is that she missed this well the first time, and it's the entire reason why God told her to go back to the boy. Where she had laid him is exactly where the water is. The second option is that he just simply opened the earth and made water appear as he had done in the Bible at other times, such as when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness. Or he did it for Samson after a battle. And God continues to do this for his people even today. In Isaiah chapter 41, he writes some words that actually look just like what we're looking at with Hagar and Ishmael right now, speaking of what he's going to do for Israel. The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. The answer to the question, was the well there or did God make it come out of the, the ground miraculously? The answer is that the water of life has always been there, but the well was hidden so that Hagar had missed it. God directed her back first to her son and then to the waters, which would take care of them and sustain them for the rest of their journey. And this is what will happen to Israel in the years ahead. The water of life, who is Jesus Christ, has been there all along. But in order for salvation to come to you and I, to the Gentile people of the world, as Paul clearly explains in Romans 9 through 11, their eyes were blinded to the truth of the gospel. But God will direct them back to himself and to his son, as it is noted in Zechariah chapter 13. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. The amazing story of God's grace reaches to all people of the world, and God fully intends to keep his promises to his beloved people, Israel. And this is how he will do it. But understand, this is what he really does for every single one of us when we call on Jesus Christ. He directs us first to his son, and then he gives us the spiritual ability to see that where he is is also where the spot of the water of life is. And then astonishingly, he gives us the choice to either drink that water or to reject that water. And the funny thing is that despite the thirst that every human soul has, not everyone is going to drink from the water of life. Verse 20, so God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. God has his plans and he has made them come to fruition. There is no thing which will thwart them, even though we think we can. Atheists love to pretend that God isn't there. 
People work hard to remove his presence from society. And at times, even believers try to suppress the knowledge of God for a spell. I know I do it every day about a thousand times, but God is there. He was there at the creation. He was there with Noah during the long days of the flood. He was there with Abraham as he waited and waited and waited for the son of promise. And he was there with the boy Ishmael. And Ishmael became an archer and a man of the wilderness. And he certainly taught this skill of archery to his own sons because more than 1,000 years later, Isaiah spoke of one of the clans of Ishmael known as Kadar, noting their skills as archers. Here's what he says in Isaiah 21. For thus the Lord has said to me, within one year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kadar will fail and the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kadar will be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken. A thousand years in time and God is still there watching and guiding the streams of human history and he is doing it even to this day. Even in your own life, he is there tending to you. And that brings us to our last verse of today. It's verse 21. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Without a father to set him up with a wife, Hagar steps in and made the selection. As she was from Egypt, so is her daughter-in-law, Ishmael's wife. Both the root and the branches of Ishmael descend and come from this same group of people. The place where they settled is called the wilderness of Paran. This place is so absolutely barren and it's so wild that being an archer makes all of the sense in the world. You cannot be a successful farmer in a place like this. It's down in the area of Mount Sinai and it is just as unforgiving as any place on the face of the earth. The wilderness of Paran means the wilderness of caverns. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that his 12 sons, Ishmael's 12 sons and their descendants after them, came to inhabit all of the country from the Euphrates River all the way down to the Red Sea, and they called it Nabataean. They're an Arabian nation, and at least until the time of Josephus, they named all of their tribes after the sons of Ishmael. In the end, this is a story about Ishmael that ultimately points to the amazingly glorious work of Jesus Christ in fulfilling the law that we cannot fulfill. And so I want to take two minutes and I want to explain to you in very short, brief detail about why Jesus Christ came and how it is relevant to you. The Bible says that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And it says that the wages of sin is death. That means that we die physically, but it also means that we are already spiritually dead because of our sin inherited from Adam. And Jesus confirms this in John 3:18. We're condemned already. There's nothing we need to do to go to hell. What we need to do is to work, not work, but to have Jesus Christ work on our behalf to take us out of hell. Heaven is not getting saved. Heaven is a result of getting saved. That's what's important for us to understand. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And then Paul tells us what we need to do in order to have that salvation. He says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He also ties in the resurrection with that. But I can tell you that nobody would call on a dead Lord. You'd be as stupid as a, a pine cone to do something like that. We are calling on a risen Lord who defeated the grave because he was born without sin. He was born from Mary, but not from Adam. And that he lived the perfect life that we cannot live. And he gave that life up on the cross of Calvary for you and I to atone for our sins. Call on the name of the Lord if you never have. If you've never been scripturally baptized, 
We can do that anytime. Just let me know and I'll take you out there and do that. I'm done with the sermon. I have uh, uh, to tell you that next week is Genesis 21, verses 22 through 33. It's called the Well of the Seven. So if you're going to be out here, I hope you'll read those 11 verses. I'm going to read you my weekly poem, and then we'll take communion and we'll be all done. This is called God Hears, God Remembers, and God Responds. And it's based on the verses that we just looked through. Sarah saw the son of the Egyptian Hagar, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing at Isaac. But this didn't go very far because she asked her husband to make them scram. Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for her son will not be an heir with Isaac. He's the only one. But God said, don't let this be displeasing in your sight because of either the lad or because of your lady's servant. Whatever Sarah has said, treat it as right. Listen to her voice, for in Isaac to your seed I will be observant. Yet I will also make a nation of your son Ishmael, because he is your seed, it will come about. So Abraham rose early in the morning before the breakfast bell. In the word of his God, he never held a doubt. He took bread and a skin of water and put it on her shoulder, and he gave the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered through shrub and boulder in the wilderness of Beersheba where only the donkeys bray. And when the water in the skin was completely gone, she placed the boy under a shrub she found there, and she went as far as an arrow shot when drawn, for to see the boy die is something she couldn't bear. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept, into anguish of soul was her whole life swept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called out of heaven to her. What ails you, Hagar? Things aren't all that bad. Fear not, for God has heard the cries and will handle this for sure. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God showed her a well of water in the desert sand, and she was certainly filled with joy and elation. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a refreshingly long drink. It was probably better than eggs and a bagel with butter, even better than a 7-Eleven Slurpee, I would think. So God was there tending to the boy, and he dwelt in the wilderness after he grew. Becoming an archer, his arrows he would deploy. The life of a hunter is the life that he knew. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and from Egypt his mother took for him a wife. And in the Arabs today, his name lives on because God looked after Ishmael's life. In the same way, God is there with you, and he will always lead you if you don't know what to do. When things seem helpless and out of control, that is the time on him. All our cares we should roll. God loves his people. The proof is in his son, our Lord Jesus, who came to show his father's heart. And through his cross and the empty tomb, the battle has been won. It is through calling on him that our new life can start. Fellowship with our creator is restored through his life. Yes, because of Jesus, all things become brand new. Between God and man, there is no longer strife because the devil's work Jesus did undo. Thank you, Lord. Let us shout out your praise and worship you in holiness for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, great are you and great is your word. Thank you for this story of a boy who seemed to be rejected by you and yet you tended to him and you have cared for him. And just as you love all the people of the world, you love your people in the church and you love the nation of Israel, you can't tolerate disobedience. And when you say call on Jesus, they must do so. And that day is coming for Israel and I pray that it comes soon so that they can know you in fullness and you will return to them as you promised in your own 
words that you will return to Israel when they call on you. Lord God, what a great and wonderful creator you are. All glory, all honor, all majesty, all blessing belong to you alone. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.